If you have your Bible with you this morning, go ahead and grab it. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 5 today. We'll be, we'll be in Ephesians 5, and we're going to be looking particularly at uh, verses 8 through 14. Uh, to bring you up to speed, Paul has spent the last several chapters of this letter, uh, particularly chapters 1 through 3, really laying out the principal doctrines of our faith. He, he's been reminding them, and, and therefore reminding us, um, and this sort of the sort of first century podcast. That's basically what the pastoral epistles are. He said, I'm going to give you a sermon. I want you to pass it around and tell everybody these things. So he's writing, he's writing with the church in Ephesus in mind, but, but truth is indifferent to audience. And so Paul spent the first three chapters of this letter really, really just laying out the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's been, he's been laying out what we would call and what Dale has called the indicatives of Christianity. And Paul isn't uniquely creative in this methodology. We don't want to give him too much credit because really this is perfectly in line with how God has spoken to his people ever since the Old Testament. If you, if you consider just one, just one example, consider the, the giving of the Ten Commandments back in, back in Exodus or even Deuteronomy. You might recall that it begins with God saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then he says, Therefore, you should have no other gods before me. So he begins with, with, this is who I am. This is what I've done. Here is the truth that you need to know. And then it's, and then it's here's what that truth means for you. And so it's, this is who I am, and, and you need to know that. And here's what it means for you to live in light of who I am. And so beginning back in chapter 4, we see Paul is calling the church to unity, He's calling them to, to unity in the body. He's encouraging them. He's encouraging them by reminding them. And so it's remember. It's remember, you're a chosen people, right? And this is where he starts. You're a, you're a chosen people, chosen before the foundations of the world. And you've been called. Generated by the Spirit, you've been called and you've been justified. You've been justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Listen, we are... We're unapologetic here about that reality. Some people in our, in our culture may be uncomfortable with that today. That Jesus is the only way of salvation. But just as, just as truth is indifferent to audience, it's also indifferent to want. Truth is indifferent. It's indifferent to comfort. It's Jesus Christ himself who says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And as followers of Christ, we, we need to understand that. We need to, we need to understand that truth and that, and that all of this, all of it, is to the glory of God alone. And so we need to embrace the truth that at that moment, at that, at that moment of justification, it's more than a pardon. It's more than a pardon. That would be great in and of itself, but that is not all it is. At that moment of justification, you're also adopted into the family of God. You are brought into, into the family of God through the Son. It's through Christ and Christ alone that we are brought to the Father. It's what Paul wrote in Ephesians 2.13. When he says, in Christ, Jesus, you who once were far off, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. This is the atonement. It's Christ paying the penalty as our substitute taking my sin upon his shoulders, exchanging his righteousness for, for my depravity. 
and purchasing my redemption with his life. This is the glorious, glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. And our unity, the unity of the body of Christ, is rooted at the foot of the cross. And the truth that if you are in Christ, you were, that we were chosen by God to be holy and blameless. And the great mystery of the gospel is not that God could save. It's not that God might save but that God does, in fact, save. And again, not just people. He doesn't just save some people. He saves you. He saves you. Salvation is not just an abstract possibility. We speak of it that way at times. But the gospel must move beyond abstraction. It's got to move beyond possibility. And it even needs to move beyond a hope. It must, it must move into it must take up residence. It must occupy reality for us. That's what Paul wants his readers to understand. And when the gospel is more than an idea, when it becomes a reality flowing out of that gospel, out of that truth, out of the indicatives that we've seen throughout the first three chapters of this book, that's where we find Ephesians 5. So look there with me now. We're going to go Ephesians 5. I'm going to start with verse 1. We're going to focus today particularly on 8 through 14, but I'll but we need to start with verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God and Christ. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not be part partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to, even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's, let's pray together. <coughs> Heavenly Father, we are going to need you uh, to come and do some work here among us. These are weighty things that we're about to, to get into. These are heavy things. These are relevant things. God, I pray that you would send your spirit now to come and and really, if at all possible, just move me out of the way. Don't let my voice, don't let my stammering tongue at any point be a hindrance to somebody hearing what you might say to them today. God, this is your word. God, speak to us. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so what we see here is Paul, uh, as he frequently does, encouraging us to remember who we were. But Paul is not... This is not just dwelling on the past, but it is an encouragement for us 
to remember. Look, look at verse 8 with me. It's an, it's an appeal there to remember that at one time you were darkness. So this is who you were. It's not that you were part of the darkness. You weren't like on the same team as darkness. You weren't associated in some, in some loose way with darkness. This is, Paul says, you were darkness. This was the sum total of everything that you were apart from Christ. We can't lose sight of that. When we lose sight of who we were on our own apart from Christ, we can't, we will lose sight of, we will lose a grasp of the magnitude of what Christ has done for us. And it'll make it really hard for us to fully embrace who we are in Him. And there is in our culture, and, and I would contend it's even within contemporary evangelicalism, I, I think the idea has become sort of prominent that we just need to be fixed. And we just need to be fixed. It, it's that salvation is really just renovation. My, my wife has a, has a deep and abiding affection for home improvement shows. Um, and really, I mean, really, it's all of them, okay? It doesn't really matter. And it's, and it's taking everything in me right now, not to say that she loves them, because I've got our verse of the year sitting right in front of me that talks about what love really is. <laughs> but she loves them. <laughs> it's been a few weeks ago now, uh, but it... It wasn't that long ago, and so, and so we're sitting there one night in the living room uh, after we had just put the kids to bed, and, and she put on a show where this, this couple from Texas helps people find and renovate their first homes. It's a great show. All the women in the room already know what I'm talking about. I was busy that night reading Spurgeon and memorizing Hebrew flashcards, but <laughs> somehow uh, I was distracted and and. And started watching this show. And they're in this old 1930s house in Waco, Texas. The interior is just a disaster. Uh, years and years of homeowner renovation. It's a mess. It's a mess. And there's this, there's this fireplace in the middle of the living room. It's very decorative. Just sort of crazy, ornate. Doesn't really fit with the whole motif that they're going for. And so the husband, right, of this husband and wife team, he just starts ripping, ripping stuff off of it. <clears throat> I mean, the hammer comes out, he's, he's tearing the mantle off the wall with way less effort than you would think it would take to get a mantle off of the wall. He's tearing up the sheetrock, he's, he's, he's tearing off everything. He's having, a, he's having a big time there. You can tell, though, by the way, that the wife is a little concerned about the direction he's going with the design. But he perseveres, he digs and he digs, and he's prying off all this all this stuff, all this old work that has been there for years. And as he keeps tearing it up, he reveals this, this beautiful brick fireplace there in the chimney. It goes straight up through the ceiling, on up through the roof. It's beautiful. It's gorgeous. They've been hidden under all of that, all of that cheap mess for years. Now, a lot of us, if we're willing to be honest, see ourselves a lot like the chimney from that home improvement show. Like, the good is there, okay? The beautiful is there. It just needs to be revealed. We just need God to take out his hammer, hopefully like a little one, and pry away some of the mess. 
I mean, we, we know we've got some baggage. I mean, we come to the, nobody thinks they're pure when they come to the table, but, but really we're not that bad. And so God, if God would just take out his rag, wipe us down a little bit, wipe away the guilt, brush off the shame, maybe chisel away some of the, some of the sin we've got there, we'll be clean enough to come and sit at his table. Now, and, and that actually sounds pretty good, but the, the problem is that could not be further away from, what, from the truth of Scripture. And what we should see in verse 8 is that Paul is not painting a picture of humanity as being in need of a little fix-up. It's not that we're simply flawed. It's not that we're just damaged. It's not that we just need some help. It's not that we need a renovation. Paul says you, Paul says you were darkness. This is who you were fundamentally at your core, even on your best day. But now... But listen, but now, but now in Christ, you are, this is verse 8, you are light in the Lord. And as light in the Lord, we have no partnership with the darkness. And so Paul's primary concern in this passage is that he wants us to know what it means to, to walk as children of light. He wants us to know, he wants us to be who we are in Christ He's going to use that word walk in this passage three times. Three times just in this chapter alone. He'll use it eight times in, in the, in altogether in this letter. And in all of these, in every single one of them, that word walk is used as a figurative way of describing a literal outworking of the gospel in the life of the believer. It's the same word. It's the same exact word in the original language that's used to describe what happens when a lame man is made to walk and when a dead man is raised from the dead. It's what we're going to see in this patch is is that to walk as children of light involves three things. Three things. The first thing that I want you to see is found in verse 10. And that verse, we, we see that walking as children of light means that we will try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. That's the first thing. We try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Our, our motivations are, chain, are changed, and as a result of that fundamental change from darkness to light, we discern in fact, the original language does not include that verb try there that has been added. It's simply discern. Paul is saying, do this. Do this. Discern. Enough of that trying business. And so it's a motivation issue. It's a matter of the heart. This is it's just like Philippians 4.8 where Paul says, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence... If there's anything worthy of praise, think on these things. You see, to to discern is an active process. It's an active process. It's the process of distinguishing between one thing and another. Other other English translations that you might have there of this verse will use phrases like uh, learn or try to learn, find out, carefully determine. In each case, what's being communicated is an active process. It's an active process of devoting time, devoting thought, energy into considering what the will of God is, not just for people. We're, We're comfortable with God's will for people. What is God's will for you? What is God's will for me? When I was in the electrical contracting business, there were times when we would have scrap materials that could be recycled. And so we would take those things, uh, metal, we'd take them out to this recycling plant and, and, and we'd unload them. And each, and each material had to be put in its proper place, right? 
And so the, the copper goes with the copper, the steel goes with the steel, the aluminum goes with the aluminum, and so on and so on. And on one occasion, I had this truckload full of old light fixtures and an entire trailer full, like a farm tractor full of light fixtures. They came out of Dutch Fork High School. And we, and we drive out there, and we knew they were steel, okay? We knew they were steel, and so they asked us, what are you recycling? We're, recy- we're recycling steel. All right, drive out into this just mess of a place out there. I mean, mountains and mountains of scrap material. You know you're replacing three tires when you come out of there. And so we drive out there, and we, we position the truck under this, under this humongous machine. And, and it had this arm that reached out about 50 feet on it. And at the end of that arm, <clears throat> at the end of that arm was this humongous uh, electromagnet. And so instead of just taking our word for it, instead of saying, okay, they say they're steel, dump them on the steel pile, they, they drove us out there, and they got us under this magnet. And they had this way of knowing for certain what was what. And so they simply held that magnet over the back of my truck, flipped the switch, and, and the steel would, would literally just jump up off the trailer. Easily one of the coolest things I've ever seen. Um, I told Laurie about it when I got home, and she was like, whatever, man, they were painting a wall on the show. Um, <laughs> the material had a way of identifying itself. It would, it would jump up. It would say, here I am. I, mean, I didn't speak, but... Whatever was steel would be taken, and whatever was aluminum or or copper would just be left behind. This is what it means to discern. It's to take the tools at your disposal, the collective wisdom, the life experience, and it's to distinguish what is good and what is evil, what is right and what is wrong, what is fruitful, to use Paul's language, and what is unfruitful. And in the case of our lives, the case of your life as a follower of Christ, is to take the Word of God, God's revelation of who he is and what duty he requires of us. And we're not left clueless on this. As soon as you might ask, well, what does it mean? How do I know the will of God for my life? And everybody's done that. What am I supposed to do? We can literally look right here in verse 9. It's on the same page where it says, The fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, I want to make sure we don't, we don't miss that. The fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. It goes right back to that Philippians 4 language. And when we hear Paul use this language of fruit, it might bring to mind the fruit of the Spirit from Galatians 5. And so we can go there too. But the fruit of the Spirit is, <clears throat> well, it's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. Self-control, and I love how Paul ends that sentence. He says, and against such things there is no law. So in the midst of this world where we find ourselves, this world of, of war, this world of deceit, this world of pain, this world that seems intent on chasing after, after false hopes, broken promises, We're called to stand in contrast to this world by producing the fruit of light in all that is good and right and true. Paul wants us to understand that fruit doesn't come from nothing. Fruit has a source. Fruit is produced 
It is cultivated. Paul's words to the church in Romans 7 remind us that you have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another. You've died to the law so that you can belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead. And listen to this, in order, in order that we may bear fruit. So again, he's going, this is who you were, right? You were darkness. That was, this is, but this is who you are. This is who you are. You are light. You were, as a believer, bought with a life, bought for a purpose. And the purpose, according to Paul, is to go and bear fruit. And in order for us to do that, in order for us to bear fruit, we have to discern what is the will of God. Just like cultivating a garden, it requires effort. And so we search His Word. We submit to and trust in His Word, and we guard our hearts for Christ. That's the first thing that we do in walking as children of light. We discern. The second thing that we see in this passage is that we are called to decline. Now, I'm, I'm, here's confession. I'm not great at alliteration, and so this one's a bit of a stretch, but, but stick with me, and, and we're going to get there. Look in, look in verse 11. Look at there. It says, Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Now, we're going to get to that exposing idea in a minute, but for now, let's focus on the first part where we're told to take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. We're to decline them. See, I told you. Paul wants us to pick up on a theme here, and it's not really hidden. It's a pretty overt theme. It's an overt objective, and here it is. It's simple. There are, there are works that are unfruitful, and there are works that are fruitful. And as a believer, you're called to one. We have the fruit of light, all that is good and right and true, and we are called to discern that, right? We just said that. Called to discern that. We, we look to God in His Word. We go to Him in prayer. We seek wise counsel. But discerning the will of God is not where it stops. Because that's the first thing we do. We discern the will of God, but that's not where it stops. That's not the only thing we do. The next thing that we're called to do is to flee from, we take no part in, we decline to participate in that which is unfruitful. But Because you see, the reality for us is that knowing God's will is only a good thing if, if you're willing to be obedient to and submit to God's will. And I think we need to be really careful at reading this without a full understanding of what it means to take no part. Because we might, or at least I fear, because of my own life, I fear that we might have a very small view, at least a a limited view of what it means to take no part in unfruitful works of darkness. John, John Calvin, he's always a good one to quote. In his commentary on this verse, verse 11, he says, It is not enough that we do not, of our own accord, undertake anything wicked. It's not enough that it's, that it's not be our idea. That's what he's saying. He's, don't sit around thinking about evil stuff to do. And most of y'all go, okay, well, that's not, I don't do that. So good. That's not enough. He says, we must beware of joining or assisting those who do wrong. You know, when you read this whole chapter and you imagine Paul writing this to the church today, it's pretty profound just how timely it is. And if you can imagine God giving Paul a glimpse into 2015 and by his Spirit working to breathe out his word to us today, 
I'm not sure that he would say anything really different from what we have from what we have on the pages sitting right here before us. Okay, so look at, look at verse 3. Let's jump back a little bit. Look at verse 3. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Now glance down at verse 4, because in verse 4 it says, Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Now, we need to remember, Paul is writing this letter to the church. Okay, he's, he's writing to those who have identified themselves as followers of Christ. So he's not writing this to the government officials there in Ephesus. This is not a letter to his representative. He's not saying, listen, there's some stuff going on in our community. Y'all need to really get a handle on this. This isn't written to the mayor. He's writing to the church. And so he's concerned. He's concerned about this. He's, he's so concerned about this that he, that he says these unfruitful works of darkness should not even be named among you. Paul is deeply concerned that the people of God starve out the desires of the flesh, because to feed them, to feed them, even just a little bit, is to watch them multiply. And what I'm telling you is that if Paul were writing this letter to the church of 2015, if he were living right now and writing to the church a letter to St. Andrews, I see absolutely no reason to believe that he would begin with anything other than these issues. Our culture, our, our Christian culture, is far too comfortable with movies, with books, with songs, and certainly with websites and magazines that exploit the human form for the sake of filling the lustful desires of our hearts. We're watching it. Our kids are watching it. And we are, we are fools if we think that it isn't having an impact on us. Thinking about the words of verse 4, we are far too comfortable with behavior that, that Paul calls filthiness or obscene, and language that he calls foolish talk and crude joking, some of us have spent more hours than we would ever care to admit watching movies that are full of filthiness, foolish talk, and crude joking. And it's about time that the church stopped looking just like the culture. It's time, it's actually past time, for the church to become counterculture. That's what the second part of verse 11 is about. Look back at the text with me. Look at verse 11. It says, take no parts in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Okay, so we discern, right? That's the first thing. We discern, we decline, and now here's the last thing. We dispatch. We dispatch. Now, that might sound like a strange word at first, but I like it. Uh, dispatch. I obviously like it. I put it in there. But I think it communicates the essence of what Paul is driving at. When we when Paul says expose, there might be some temptation to think that, of that in terms of a referee. You, do you know what I mean when I say that? We have a lot of people and, and a lot of Christians who are, are, who are great, who are uniquely skilled at being what I would just call life referees. I, I don't know if you've had the pleasure of, of having one of these people in your life. Um, life referees are great at pointing out everything that's wrong right? Everything that's wrong. And then never lifting a hand, never doing anything to actually contribute as to how to fix it. So they just run around, blowing their whistle, pointing out everything that's wrong. Before you know it, these are the people 
And it doesn't really matter if they're right. It doesn't matter if they're correct, because the reality is that nobody, nobody wants to hear them. And so Paul is not so much interested in the church being the moral conscience of the universe here. He's more interested in the church being a light in the darkness. And so when Paul says expose, he's not just talking about pointing out sin. And you have to remember Paul's background a little bit here. His, his story. Think back on Paul's story. We have to consider his timeline here. If you, if you want to, you can turn there. Um, it's in Philippians 3. You don't have to. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read it for you. But Philippians 3, 4 and 6. We need to remember that this is the same guy who wrote to the Philippians saying, if anyone else, if anyone else has, thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. That's what Paul says. It says it right there. Not only is he a Hebrew of Hebrews, not only is he from the right nation, he's from one of the really good tribes. And here's the thing, he's a Pharisee. And what we know about the Pharisees is that they were scrupulous about the law. They knew their Torah. They knew it. They were committed to living righteous under the law. And really, okay, really, that's a good thing. We want to be careful, though. Pursuing righteousness should be a good thing. And so the problem with the Pharisees wasn't so much the activity as it was the motivation behind the activity. They were so busy trying to live according to the law that they forgot the lawgiver. That's who Paul was. He was once darkness. He was blind. He walked in the hope of self-righteousness, in the hope of being found holy and acceptable. That's who he was. He was was the referee. He had the whistle. And he was the guy that Jesus would call a, a whitewashed tomb, a hypocrite. Matthew 23, 27, Jesus goes on to say that they are they outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. Jesus didn't take it easy on the Pharisees. But as a new creation in Christ Jesus, Paul, Paul understood this. He understood that he had been darkness. That's who he was and that he wasn't that anymore. No, in Christ, Paul now says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And so when Paul says expose, this is not him reverting back to his former life. He's not going back to that Pharisee life. The idea here is more along the lines of reproving and convincing. It's a transformative type of exposition. It's what naturally happens when the light invades dark spaces. The darkness is dispatched. It's dealt with. It's it's sent away. In a very real sense, the darkness is is conquered. A few weeks ago, our, our son turned seven years old. It was a big day. We had cake. We had a party. It was awesome. A bunch of his boys came over, and we had the most epic Nerf battle you've ever seen. If you don't know what that is, go to Target today, get you a Nerf gun, and have some fun. Um, Some of the college kids from the church came over and ambushed him on the driveway. It was amazing. It was great. 
one of the gifts that he received for his birthday was a new flashlight. Just a little, like, you know, flashlight. And so that night, obviously, we had to test that thing out. And so we, we walk out of our garage, we start heading up our driveway, and many of you have been up to where we live, it's a, it's a pretty good ride through the woods there, so it's really dark, it's, it's, his birthday's in January, so it was really cold, overcast, kind of one of those nights where your eyes never really adjust to the darkness. And so he clicked on his new flashlight, and we just took off. And we're, you know, it's an adventure, right? I mean, this is, this is father and son trekking into the wilderness. Against all odds, you know, late at night. It's really like 8 o'clock. We're just hoping to make it back safely. Didn't even take a compass with us or anything, you know. As long as we had that light, that little, little Coleman flashlight, as long as we had that flashlight, the darkness couldn't overcome us. Well, this is basically what Paul is telling us to be in the world. It's that we discern the will of God, to know what is good and right and true, and we decline, okay, we proactively take no part in the darkness, and we also dispatch the darkness. It's sent away. Paul says in verses 12 through 14 that it's shameful even to speak of the things they do in secret, but when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is like, you see, the... Re- it's the reality that once darkness has seen the light, it can't, go be, it can't go back to being what it was. This is what it means for you and I to, to be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And the thing about you and I, the thing about you and I as children of light, as those who have been called from darkness, redeemed into light, is that, well, it's that we don't have an off switch. Remember back in verse 8. Verse 8, it said, at one time you were darkness, but now you, now you are light in the Lord. This is your new identity. This is your life. And just like my son and I on the dark road that night, how is the world to see the path? How are they to understand the right direction, to be be drawn to the light if the church itself is hiding in the shadows? How are they to know the light unless it is displayed? Many of us are looking at the world constantly. We turn on our TV, we flip through the newspaper, we Go to our favorite news website, whatever it is, wherever you get your news from. We look at the world and go, why can't they get it? Like, what is wrong with the world? Why can't they just get their act together? Why do they keep running from the Lord? Paul's challenge to us is that we must show them. We must display the light in order to to dispatch the darkness. Paul, Paul says in Philippians 2 that we're to be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you among whom you so among whom you side balcony among whom you and and this one equal opportunity balcony people here in order that you 
Not the person sitting next to you. In order that you, back balcony, I can see you. In order that you, not that guy, you, him too, but in order that you, y'all already know. Y'all already know. Among whom you will shine as lights in the world. Verse 14 is shown as a quote. It could have been from a first century hymn or some form of confession. The reality is we don't know. And where the quote comes from is really of little consequence. It's in my Bible, and so that's good enough for me. If Paul's quoting it, I'm going to go with him. What I hope you'll see when you read Ephesians 5.14 is a simple and concise appeal from the light to the darkness. These few words should be the cry of every Christian heart to the lost. It should be the song that we sing to our kids, the first words that we think with each new morning. I know some of y'all are sticky note people. I've been in this church a long time. I've been in your houses. I've seen your sticky notes. Make you a sticky note when you get home. These words should be on there. Paul says, awake. Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. We have here. Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. We have here what Sinclair Ferguson calls the glorious, powerful call of Christ himself in the gospel. It's really that simple. Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. There's nothing more counterculture, nothing, than the gospel. There is nothing that shines brighter as a light in our dark world than the promise and the hope of salvation in Christ. The title of the sermon is Be Who You Are. Be who you are. Go. Go. Be. Go be. Because you are, you are light in the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, it's one thing to hear it. It's one thing to read it. It's one thing to stand up here and shout it. It is another thing to live it. So God, I pray that you would be at work in us. I pray that you'd be at work in us, Lord. Help us to to fight to be who we are in you. Help us to embrace that. Help us to live as if we believe God, I pray that you'd forgive my my failure. Forgive my inability to live the words that I just spoke. God, I pray that you'd empower us. You're the one who saves. You're the one who gives life. Help us rest in that and go and be who you've called us to be. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.